current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hello and a big and warm welcome to our listeners for this first episode of Odeon Capital Conversations. It's all about money and markets. I'm with two very distinguished Wall Street names and personalities. Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstyne, Co-Founder and Managing Partner at Odeon Capital Group. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dick and Matt, it's an important time to be talking about the markets. We've been on a roller coaster the past couple of weeks. It's crazy. What do you make of it? Basically, I think it's due to the fact that uh, we've been in a very, very unusual market situation now for, I'd say, a couple of years, ever since the Federal Reserve started printing money at an incredibly rapid pace. In other words, in the past two years, uh, the Federal Reserve has printed uh, or caused to be printed $6 trillion, uh, and that's never happened before. It's about a third of the money supply, uh, and it's the biggest amount absolutely ever. Well, hold those thoughts because uh, I'm going to bring Matt in too. You've been watching the markets the past few weeks, obviously, Matt. I mean, what do you make of this? I think it's clear that the Fed put, which has been the base of the market for at least 12 years, is at least at a minimum in doubt as to whether or not the Fed put is still there or where the Fed put lies. Is it at 4,200? Is it 4,000? Is it 3,600? The question is, does the Fed put still support the market? And right now, there's a lot of doubt to it. And I think that's what you saw yesterday. Well, we'll keep watching very closely. Now, a little bit more about uh, Odeon Capital Conversations. Each episode, will look at the big picture on Wall Street, the macro view. And we will also take deep dives into the research commentary and papers by Dick Beauvais of Odeon. Uh, you have decades of experience to back you up, Dick, with your ideas, views, reports, and outlook. So this is going to be a very exciting show and conversations. I'm going to kick this off, our first episode, with this recent statement by Dick. Dick, you've said the Federal Reserve is in deep trouble, and you alluded to some of that just a moment ago over its balance sheet, and now... It is in one of the worst positions you have ever seen. You make the point that more than 100% of the increase in the U.S. Federal Reserve balance sheet in the past 12 months has come from borrowing money in the reverse repo market. 
In other words, you say the Fed is borrowing money at the shortest end of the curve in order to fund the purchase of long-term securities. The balance sheet is a disaster in your own words. Now, before you explain your case and break that down, Matt has some questions for you on that. Well, I first, I, I think that I, I'd love to hear Dick's explanation and, and expand further on that. But, but second, um, is that exactly what the reverse repo market is doing? Or is that more of an alternative to banks lending out to retail investors and businesses? Well, uh, you know, taking um, the last first, uh, the reverse, reverse repo market right now is funding the Federal Reserve. Uh, essentially, if you take a look at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, it, uh, it, it obtains its money. Um, well, in, in olden days, it obtained uh, virtually all of its money from printing currency. In other words, there was no other source of funding for the Federal Reserve. There were reserves coming in from banks, reserves being deposits that banks make at the Federal Reserve, but they were, you know, they were not a major force or a major factor. Uh, when they started with all of these quantitative easings, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the, after the Great Recession or during the Great Recession, going back to 2007, all of this changed. Uh, it meant that uh, they started paying a, uh, a federal funds rate on uh, the bank deposits to attract the banks to put more money into the Fed. Uh, they started buying a lot, a lot of treasuries in the open market, and the treasuries would deposit a lot of the money that was received from the Fed buying back to the Fed. And that's another whole circular thing that we can uh, review at some point. Uh, but the situation got worse and worse as we came into uh, the last you know, financial problem, you know, which was stimulated by the pandemic. And what, what occurred here was the Fed, you know, could no longer rely upon the banks because ultimately the banks finally had to start making loans, which they've been doing for the last few months. And the Treasury started using all of the deposits it had at the Fed. So the Fed had two options. Do, do, do we want to go out and print more money, which apparently is not really an option if it's going to be highly inflationary, or... Do we want to go into the short-term money markets and borrow the money we need to maintain our quantitative easing program? The decision they made was, we're going to go into the, the short-term money markets and we're going to borrow money there and use the money we borrow there to buy treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. It's, it's, it's unheard of. It's, it's, it's the worst of any... Uh, wild fantasy about short-term lending, short-term borrowing to fund long-term lending. It, it is it's quite bad. And, and, and that's just the starter. I just want to make sure I understand the mechanics clear because I'm not as sure on it as, as I think I was. I believed that prior to your statement that what the Fed was doing was printing money to buy treasuries in the open market. And the reverse repo was a release valve to give some sort of earnings to banks that had excess cash on their balance sheet and that the two were not connected directly and you're connecting them. And I'm just curious if that connection is actually part of the Fed's function or if it's just a byproduct of what you're observing. Well, uh, what the Fed may have intended 
when it stepped into the the reverse repo market and and into the repo markets themselves because you recall a couple of years ago there was a significant crisis there that the fed intervened in to 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 stabilize funding costs in that market uh, what it initially intended is not what it's doing at the present time at the present time the, the federal reserve it will take the last 12 months in the last 12 months, the Federal Reserve increased its balance sheet by $1.4 trillion. It borrowed $1.6 trillion of that money in the reverse repo market. In other words, it borrowed the money necessary to fund the quantitative easing program. And the quantitative easing program wasn't set up to make banks more money or to make money market mutual funds more money. Quantitative easing program, in theory, was set up to assist the economy. It's not the way it's worked out, but that's what, in theory, it was set up for. But, but QE is a long-term, in theory, they could do QE once, then hold the assets on the balance sheet until maturity and, and retire the assets. The reverse repo market seems to be a daily liquidity vehicle for, for the money market participants. So if the Fed is quote-unquote, borrowing from the money market, it's not like a stable source of funding in the sense that if things change, they could lose that liquidity overnight, and then we're back to the money printing uh, in the traditional sense. So I, I feel like what, what you're saying is accurate and convenient, but it's not necessarily the mechanics of what they're thinking. I don't think um, Jay Powell is saying, let's borrow from the money market to go buy treasuries. It just turns out that they have cash in the reverse repo market currently, and they're buying treasuries at the same time, but the two aren't necessarily interconnected. Yeah, they don't have that much cash that they're putting into the repo market. They're putting all of their money uh, into either, you know, mortgage, they've got about $2.8 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities and about, I don't know, $5.6 trillion, and, and these numbers may be off by a small amount, $5.6 trillion in treasuries, and they've got about eight six, 8.7 trillion in assets. So if you add it up, they don't have a lot of money in the reverse repo. They don't have a lot of money in the repo markets. However, um, it is not the function of the Federal Reserve to make profits for banks, nor is it the function of the Federal Reserve to make profits for money market mutual funds. Uh, banks don't need the Federal Reserve to do that for them. In other words, if the, if the Federal Reserve wants to make money for banks, all it has to do is increase the reserve, uh, the federal funds rate. In other words, it was it put out the federal funds rate, you know, I think 10, 12 years ago to, to entice banks to put more money into the Fed. Why does it have to, you know, use this circuitous route of going to the, the reverse repo market when it, all the banks have to do is just deposit the money directly into the Fed, collect a return on it, and and it's it's simple, you know. It's not it's not convoluted. They're not using other parties. A few weeks ago, uh, I was given the express explanation that you know basically they had to bail out the money market mutual funds. That is not the function of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve function is not to figure out ways for money market mutual funds to make money. Uh, its its functions are to to maintain full employment and a stable price environment, and and you know putting money into you know money market mutual funds or putting money into banks is is not meeting either one of those requirements. So no, I I I don't. What whatever their thought process was, 
they got themselves into a box. And that box is, is a terrible one because think about it. You know, they've been buying all of these long-term securities because the way the way I look at the way if I remember the numbers correctly, 97% of all of the mortgage bonds that they have purchased have maturities which are 10 years or greater. 27% of all the treasuries they bought have maturities which are 10 years or greater. So, you know, interest rates have gone up pretty substantially on the long end. Not only have they gone up substantially on the long end, but the value of all of these securities that the Fed has bought has gone down. I believe strongly if you mark them to market, which they should do, if you mark them to market, you would wipe out the equity of the Federal Reserve. It has no equity. Because if you take a look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, it has, you know, something called, you know, residual uh, liabilities and equity, which is about 55 basis points of uh, the assets of the Federal Reserve. Okay, you, you mark these things to market, you're going to wipe out that 55 basis points. The other way you might wipe it out is they got $2.8 trillion in mortgages. Those mortgages are not all 100% good. They should have reserves against those mortgages. They have none. So it, let's assume this wasn't a central bank with, with the world's you know, reserve currency as its product, right? Let's assume it's a bank. No bank in the United States definitely, and I would argue probably in the world, would be allowed to construct a balance sheet the way the Federal Reserve has constructed its balance sheet. It's using short-term money to fund long-term assets. It's not marking to market its assets. It's not putting reserves up against its equity, um, against its loans. It has no real equity. It has no real equity. It's only out is to either print money like crazy, which it, they can't do because of inflation, or shrink. And I think it's going to shrink. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of negatives that are going to come out of that. In shrinking, though, if, if, if they're not marking the market, and if you think they would, and I agree with you, if they did mark the market, they'd be negative book value. Um, in shrinking, they're going to be real marking the market in different way, in a different way. Yes. So because it's the Federal Reserve, because it is the reserve currency, the Federal Reserve of the reserve currency, it, it almost is de facto doesn't matter because it's already, I mean, this isn't a surprise to any market participant that if they mark to market, long bonds in a rising interest rate environment would take their book, you know, their equity below negative, below zero. So what difference does it make that we now know this if, if the outcome is they can shrink their book because their goal is price stability to reduce inflation and they might have negative book value, but there's no consequence because they have the money printing machine. Yeah. You got, you got a really good point there. And, and I think, I mean, that is so important what you just said, because, you know, the market is saying, or everybody who's analyzing the market is saying, you know, eh, well, three, four, five, six rate increases are in, are in the market, right? So it doesn't matter. Fed can do whatever it wants. Oh, the Fed can shrink its balance sheet. Doesn't matter. It's in the market. Everything's priced in the market. Nothing is priced in the market. The reason why nothing is priced in the market is because when the Fed did its little dance, as I said a few minutes ago, it created $6 trillion 
it resulted in the creation of $6 trillion in M2. And that's not even the real money supply because the Fed doesn't know how to count the money supply any longer. And we can go into that also. But the point is, you threw $6 trillion into the market. That helped fund $11 trillion of mergers and acquisitions. That helped fund, I think it was $3 trillion of of uh, you know per, of uh, funding for uh, high grade uh, secure, securities, uh, it funded you know over a trillion dollars of uh, no eight nine hundred billion in in high yield securities. It funded eight hundred billion in uh, you know IPOs and secondary offerings. In other words, that money went into the market, and there was a result of that money going into the market. It screwed up the whole uh, situation of the banking industry because you know now the capital markets companies and the non-bank financial companies had all of this money that they could utilize in order to you know take market share from the banks, which they did. Now, if the bank shrinks, shrinks its balance sheet and doesn't print money, no one's dumping another six trillion dollars into the market. That is not priced in to anyone. No one is putting funds into the market. And the, the, there is the outside shot, if the Fed panics, that they will shrink the money supply. So what then happens to all these funds come to these through the capital markets company? What happens to all of this, uh, you know, funds that, that are going through, you know, these non-bank financials? You know, it doesn't exist. And it has a significant impact on the financial sector, higher rates. It has a significant impact on the economy, potential recession of significant magnitude. No, no they're, they're, they're in trouble. They're in trouble because they went out on a limb constructing a balance sheet, which is simply inappropriate for any financial institution. Do you think looking at peers around the world like Japan yeah. and their central bank and what they've been doing for the last 30 years, and they now own, I think, almost 50% of the stock market in Japan, the, the consequence of their basically easy money policy and then, and then um, perpetuate, perpetuating a, a zero inflation environment for now three decades during an easy money policy, do you think that's not an example of what is in the, in the future for the Fed? It is, you know, we'll yeah. see that's, that's, you know, the great unknown. I mean, in, in, in 1972, when I came into this business, I went to my boss and I said, you know, I can't believe the Fed is, you know, that the, the U.S. government is borrowing all this money. How the hell are they going to continue to borrow all this money? It doesn't make any sense. And since he was a hell of a lot smarter than me, he said, hey, Dick, you know, this can go on for another month and collapse he could go on for another 10 years and collapse, uh, or, or he, he wouldn't dare say what reality has turned out to be. This could go on for another 50 years and not collapse. So I, I'm, I'm not about to tell you that they, that they won't be called on this by the market. I think they will be, and I think the entity that'll call them on it is China, and I think the entity that will call them on it using the mechanism will be the one. And it will, you know, I think that the dollar as the world's reserve currency is in trouble because of this. Now, you know, whether they're going to get away with it for another 25 years or not, I can't tell you. But I don't think they are, number one. And number two, I think that there is a, a very com compelling force on the other side, the one 
which is going to knock the dollar off its pedestal if they continue to do this. Well, I, I would challenge that just on the basis of there's no outside country that wants the yuan as part of their financing or currency in their internal markets. There are a lot of countries in the world, I'm, I'm talking on the top of my head, but somewhere 80, 90% of the currencies have some sort of peg to the US dollar, including the yuan, including the Hong Kong dollar, including the Taiwanese dollar um, and the Singapore dollar. Like the, the alternatives are currently all based on the US dollar. Now, I agree with you, nothing that which can't last forever won't, but the idea that the 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 telltale signs are there that we're on the verge of a change in the reserve currency just isn't there. Like you said, you started in 1972. Well, eight years later, gold had five X right now. Yeah. Gold has basically been range bound since money printing really began in earnest since 2008. You know, you had that spike early, but it's been basically between 1300 and 1800. And today I think it's getting closer to 1900, but you haven't seen the moves in other hard money assets that would make you think, wow, the dollar's on the verge of losing everything. There's not been a rush to the exits of the US dollar as much as Putin and Xi and, and Iran have talked about trying to get outside of the dollar system. The dollar system seems to be the obstacle. Well, um, again, very important point because uh, let me see if I can explain uh, simply what China has accomplished, okay? Um, First off, you came out of World War II, the only currency in existence is the dollar. You know, nothing else is convertible around the world. And therefore, basically, uh, every every uh, nation has to get dollars, has to get treasuries, and they put them into their central banks and they print money off of uh, the dollar and the, and, the, and the treasuries, which is exactly what you said, which is exactly correct, right? So then, you know, all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, uh, the United States figures out we, we can use this as a political weapon. We can, we can start to sanction countries around the world that do things that we don't like. And by the way, if, I, if, I, if my memory is correct, there are 29 countries in the world right now which have been sanctioned by the United States in one fashion or the other, but they all come back to the dollar, they all come back to the banking system, right? So the Russians really unhappy about it, the Chinese unhappy about it, the Iranians going crazy about it. So what they figure out is maybe we can create another currency and another ecosystem built around that currency, which does not rely on the dollar. So in, what is it, 2001, China joins the World Trade Organization. Uh, it now starts to, to, to be able to deal with banks around the world. So, you know, maybe in 2001, there, maybe there were 100 banks in the world who would do business with the Chinese banks. Now there are tens of thousands that will do business with the Chinese banks. Second thing that China starts doing is it, it has this tremendous trade surplus. So it's, it's collecting, and I happen to think that was the base of the uh, financial collapse in 2007, but it, it has this you know, huge surplus. So it's pulling in dollars, huge amounts of dollars, which it's using uh, in the People's Bank of China as the reserve currency. All right, the next thing it does is it goes out and it starts lending this money to what I believe is 160 countries around the world and there's something called the Kiel Institute in Germany, K-I-E-L, uh, and they have been tracking Chinese 
if you will, loans to other countries, you know, around the world. And, and basically, they've come to the conclusion that 6% of the world GDP is owed to China. And then China, you know, starts doing something else. It goes to its, its partner countries, like Russia. Russia has, you know, gotten rid of all of its dollar investments in its Russian pension funds, according to the press, and it only buys things backed by the one. It goes to Iran, to the Union of South Africa, it, and, and it tells these countries, you know, you want to do business with us, you do it in one, okay? You know, we don't, we don't want you to do business with us in dollars. Then it goes to countries like Ecuador. And it's in, in Ecuador now, according to the Kiel Institute, and by the way, you, you've got Carmen Reinhardt, on the Kiel Institute, and Kyron Reinhardt is a Harvard professor who wrote this book, This Time is Different, you know, which was such a success 15 years ago. But anyway, so she's, she's, a, she's a reputable person. This is a reputable institution. Anyway, as far as the Kiel Institute can tell, you know, 90% of the oil output of Ecuador is owed to China for repayment of the debt to China. And if Ecuador misses any payments, China has the right to take any natural resource in Ecuador to pay for what the China missed. You got a country called Djibouti, which is, you know, probably the size of Queens, right? But it sits right on the edge of uh, where the, the African continent hits the, the uh, Saudi Arabia. And through that very narrow strait, uh, which I guess is called the Strait of Hormuz, you know, Djibouti is sitting right there. It's right on that tip. Virtually the whole economy of Djibouti is based around the Chinese loans. So what did the Chinese say to Djibouti? They said, look, you guys don't have to pay us back. You can, you can give us this port. And on that port, they built the first military base outside of, you know, China. And, it, and, you know, guess what's behind yeah. that military base? The American military base. So, so the point is, China, oh, and, 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 and I forgot, China has got the IMF to declare China's currency as a world reserve currency. Going another step further, China has set up its own IMF called the Asian Something Development Agency, in which some 60 countries, I guess, have, have joined, in which China lends money the way the IMF lends money in the Western world. So are they at the point where they can knock the dollar off the throne? No. Are they going to get to that point? I think they will. We're going to take it back to a domestic perspective, but first let us tell our listeners you're listening to the Odeon Capital Conversations. I'm here with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Um, back to your point, uh, Dick, earlier, you've, you said actually in a recent statement, again, on the balance sheet of the Central Bank of the United States, and to some extent, the world financial system may be deeply troubled. You One assumes, you said, that this balance sheet must be stabilized, that's shrunk, and that's what we're seeing uh, this week as the Fed holds talks. There's talk of interest rate rises. Nobody expects otherwise. This probability may have been a key reason spooking the equity markets yesterday. Matt, have you some comments on that? 
Well, I said earlier, I think the blame is on on the Fed. Clearly, I, I think they the market thinks that Jay means it this time. The yeah. Fed put is no longer there, and they might be testing um, Mr. Powell to see if the Fed put is there, or you know, it's just a risk off moment. And and buyers were on strike for at least seven hours yesterday, but they came back with a roar at the end of the day, and and you know, here we are. Um, another day of volatility, another day down. It's been, uh, you know, I think the worst January on record. And, you know, we're going to find out a lot tomorrow at the press conference if Jay is scared. Um, when I say Jay, Jay, you know, Jay Powell, the chair, I think, I think he's going to want to show his, his strong position on inflation, at least until the, the vote to reconfirm his, his job. Um, and then we'll see. I think my guess is that he's going to come out hawkish with, with indications that they're going to raise interest rates somewhere between 25 and 50 basis points in March. And, and then we'll go from there. But I think I've also been on, on a different view than Dick on inflation in the sense that I've still am on team transitory as much as Mr. Powell has moved off it. I feel like by the time we get to Q3 or Q4 of this year, we're going to see at least the six and sevens and the fives on the inflation number in the rearview mirror because a lot of it is inventory building. A lot of it is in parts of the economy that are so sticky, but they're very not, you know, like rental cars and used car prices. A lot of that is just the coming out of the, the cage of the quarantine and people want to spend their money. And there's not a lot of inventory out there and, and there's supply chain shocks due to COVID, not due to inflation. I think that stuff will dissipate and we'll get to a point where we're starting to see three handles and two handles again on inflation and by the end of the year. And so I, I I think he'll come out hawkish, but I think it, by the end of the year, we're going to be talking a different story on inflation. So you think it's more of a supply chain issue, this inflationary trend, and that that will abate later in the year? You don't see this flood of liquidity in the U.S. financial system and globally impacting and contributing to this inflation? Well, I think I, I, I take Dick's point very clearly. I think he's right. There has been a lot of money printing, which has gone to asset inflation. But when you get it down to when you try to link it to consumer price inflation, that really seemed to me come from the fiscal stimulus, which, you know, we had a lot under the last year of Trump. We had a ton in the first year, you know, first year under Biden. But with Build Back Better being dead, it seems like the, the fiscal spending that will get immediately impacted into the economy is gone. And it feels like it's gone for good. Um, and I feel like that's where a lot of the extra cash that we are seeing on the consumer balance sheets was coming from. The asset inflation is, is quite different. You know, you see Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and all these, you know, extreme end of the tail assets rising up. You know, I think at some point it's close to two and a half trillion dollars in valuation and it's collapsed almost 60% totally. You know, you're down to about a trillion in crypto, um, but you still don't see inflation. You don't see it on the long bond. You don't see it even on the 10-year. You don't see it in gold. You don't see it in silver. You, you don't see the inflation in the traditional places that hard money goes to as a place of safety when inflation is actually coming. Mm. Um, it, it feels temporary to me. So the markets are not expecting inflation long term. That's what you're saying here. I think if they were expecting it long term, you'd see the 30 year, at least with a three handle, yeah. maybe a four handle. Dick, is this the end of stimulus? Is the Fed going to stay on course? It's a, it's a very important point, because basically, um, what what is the core root of inflation? If you go back, uh, you know, 
10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. It is when uh, the central bank of a country prints money to pay the debt of a country. You know, the Romans did it. You know, they, they took the uh, silver coin, they put gold in it, which was actually worth less than silver at that time. Then they ultimately put copper in it, uh, and then it became totally copper. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it, it's been done, you know, by the Federal Reserve in the United States um, because, uh, well, well, Venezuela, you know, t t take the big inflations around the world, forget the Roman Empire, the Weimar Germany, that's what they did. That's what Venezuela did. That's what Zimbabwe did. You know, all of these uh, rampant inflations were not created by, you know, supply chain, you know, disruption, although clearly supply chain disruption is going to create inflation. Um, the the uh, the fact of the matter is that if a nation has a significant deficit, and if nobody wants to pay for that deficit, so the nation's central bank has to print money to pay for that deficit. You know, history would tell you that that's highly inflationary. So if the United States continues to run big deficits, and if no one wants to buy those deficits, and I'll go back to this in a second, then I think inflation remains. If the, de if the uh, deficits in the United States continue to contract because they've come down enormously from where they were, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, and, and, and others want to step up and pay for that deficit, then inflation will contract. But I think the, the issue is two other factors, not supply chain disruptions. The first one being, you know, will the United States continue to grow big deficits? And the second one is who's going to buy the deficits? And, and let me give you, you know, let me throw you some more odd statistics, all right? Um, 15 years ago, uh, the Social Security Fund and other government pension funds bought something on the order of 55 to 60% of all of the new debt being created by the U.S., all right? On top of that, foreigners bought 15 to 20%. So if we take the low end of those numbers, say 55% and 15%, and you put them together, that means that 70% of the net debt being created in the United States was being paid for by pension funds and foreigners. That's not inflationary. That's fine. That's, you know, it may affect the economy because you're diverting funds from, you know, the economy to the U.S. government, but it's not going to be inflationary. Last year, the um, pension funds went down from 55% to 15%. Fortunately, the foreigners stepped up from 16% to 32%, but you can see there's a big hole here. It was 30% of the money that was coming 15 years ago, not from the pension funds, and I, I don't want to make these statistics too much, but put it this way, seven out of every 10 cents of the new debt was being paid for by the pension funds and the foreigners. That was 15 years ago. Last year, if I simplify it, they are paying 20 cents, not 70 cents. So someone had to step in and, and make up the difference. That was the Federal Reserve. 15 years ago, the Federal Reserve was buying 5 cents of the net new debt. 
in the last year up to the third quarter of 2021, because we don't have the numbers uh, you know, yet for the fourth quarter, the Fed bought 70 cents. They went from six cents to 70 cents. That's why we have inflation, because they had to print all of that money and they're printing trillions of dollars. And in my view, that's what created the inflation. Now, if you tell me that, you know, the foreigners are going to step in and buy it again, the pension funds can't because they just don't have the money, uh, then, then basically, good. Then, then we won't have to have the Fed buy the, buy the debt. And if the Fed doesn't buy the debt, we won't have the inflationary pressure. And, you know, Matt could be a thousand percent right. And that uh, a year from now, two years from now, you know, the inflation rate could be down. But it isn't going down, in my view, as long as the Fed is buying that debt. Why do you think it is that during the interventions right after the financial crisis, you know, for the first 2009 to 2013, you know, you had the taper tantrum, you know, there, there wasn't the inflation. The Fed was buying a lot of assets at that time. And, and then, again, Japan. I mean, there's lots of examples of central banks buying. I think the comparison to Zimbabwe, Venezuela. You know, that's obviously the scary ones, but those aren't the reserve currencies and they actually don't have that much productivity in the economies. And at the time when they were going through their massive inflation, Venezuela especially, they were suffering massive productivity declines in their workforce population because of political moves their their leaders were taking. So the comparisons, while terrifying, obviously, don't seem to be on par in the sense that what our Federal Reserve's mandate is stable pricing and full employment. Um, You know, there's, there's history of it not being inflationary. The inflation didn't happen, you know, early on in the pandemic when there weren't the supply chain issues and they were doing enormous amounts of buying back then too. It, to me, it seems like the inflation appearing in the last, you know, six to nine months has been more correlated to the reopening and the supply chain shocks and, and, and not correlated directly to money printing from the Fed. Well, I mean, you're certainly correct that, uh, you know, the supply chain disruptions has created a problem. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we'll be looking at very closely in the, the earnings that come out for the rest of uh, this, this season is uh, the profit margins, because I think that uh, what, what we're looking at is not just, you know, supply chain disruptions, but price gouging at a level that uh, perhaps hasn't been seen in the history of this country. Um, and I can give you some examples of that. But, but the bottom line is uh, you, can't, you can't pay $100 for something if you've only got $50. And if the economy doesn't have the money, if the Fed isn't creating the money, you can't, you you may have supply chain disruptions and you may have uh, an increase in the prices, you know, on on various products. But, you know, ultimately the the producers of those products have got to reduce the prices in order to sell the products. On the other hand, if you have 150 bucks, uh, you can pay a hundred bucks for anything. And, uh, you know, the producer of that product can increase the price. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see. But I mean, basically, the Fed has never bought this much of the debt of the United States um, on a net basis. You know, in, as far as the numbers I have going back, and they go back to 19, the 1952. Um, so I don't have the World War II numbers. Uh, but the point is that um, we've never done this before. 
Uh, no, I agree. I think though that what we have in the last six to nine months was a combination of excess cash on on consumer balance sheets from one sitting at home for a year and not spending and not going on vacations and whatnot, combined with a supply shortage. So you're right. Everyone has $150 to buy something that used to cost 50. They don't care if they spend a hundred, but that's changing rapidly. And we're going to get to a point where we have excess inventories because companies learned that being short of inventories during a high price period is not the best place to be for high profits. So they're, you know, you saw it in the Q4 numbers, inventories made up, I think 60% of the GDP growth of last, of last quarter. The excess inventories are going to be there at the exact same time that the consumer runs out of money, and and the money they're getting was from fiscal stimulus from the Congress, not from the Fed buying treasuries, which might be support, supporting asset prices in the in the securities markets, but not necessarily impacting the consumer directly. And I think if you look at the lesson from 2008, was that the money printing through quantitative easing doesn't go into consumers' pockets directly, and it doesn't necessarily impact inflation or productivity the way stay-at-home orders, work from home, don't travel, don't dine out, don't go out with your friends, creates excess cash on, on the average customer's checking account, which they can then use. And I agree. I think, you know, especially this week with a lot of the big companies reporting, we're going to find out what happened to profit margins in Q4. But I just don't necessarily think that it's clear that inflation is coming because, again, you still don't have gold moving at all. You don't have the long bond moving. You don't have a lot of these telltale signs that, you know, you, you point out foreigners aren't buying our treasuries. Well, sure. But a lot of that is geopolitics. You know, China strategically is moving away from treasuries for geopolitical political reasons. Putin is moving away and he's been buying gold, but he hasn't really moved the price of gold. So I, I think that you're seeing a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the signs that would be there if inflation was coming, but I think a lot of the pricing for inflation to be coming isn't there. And I don't think the feedback loops are there yet with the consumer to accelerate purchases that would dramatically create the feedback loops that would continue inflation. Well, go back to what you said in the beginning, that uh, it wasn't the the Fed that was uh, putting the money in the pockets of the consumer. It was the government. Not so. It was the Fed because the government had to get the money from the Fed in order to put it in the pockets of the consumer. So it was the Fed that uh, gave uh, you know th- this money to the Fed, not the U.S. government, uh, although the Fed is the U.S. government, <laughs> okay? No, but, uh, but the Fed doesn't direct money into consumers' pockets. The Fed does fund the government, but the government decided, let's send checks to everyone for some reason. Yeah, yeah, no, and- that's correct. That's correct, but they had to get the money from someone. I mean, the government can't just say, I want to put, you know, 300 bucks, uh, you know, a month into everybody's pockets, if it doesn't have the 300 bucks. So when the government wanted to put the 300 bucks in everybody's pocket, it knocked on the door of the Fed and said, give me the money. Of course. So, so it's the Fed that gave them the money. But but again, I, you know, if, if, um, my my view being that we're going to be in a recession, you know, in in 18 to 24 months for the reasons you just gave, uh, you know, is is correct. Then yeah, well, well, that's how you kill inflation. You you create a recession, and how do you create a recession? You stop printing money, and you drive up interest rates, um, and you force people out of work, um, and you, uh, in other words, you know, 
the, the increase in wages, which we haven't mentioned, is, is not going to come down uh, if uh, the supply chain is uh, filled or inventories are not there. Uh, you, you know, you can't go. Bank of America is now paying $22 as the min- per hour as the minimum wage. They can't go back to those people and, and say, you know, we're now going to start paying you 17 or 15 What they do is they fire them. And the new people they hire, they pay 15 all right, so, you know, I, I think, you know, that w- we're in so much trouble on this situation that we are ultimately going to come to a bad ending. And that's how you're going to end the inflation. And that's how, you know, you're going to get the economy, you know, to cleanse itself and, and get back to, let's say, a, a more normal, uh, you know, a- operation. But I, I don't see how the Fed can keep printing money and inflation not continue to rise. I'm going to come in here, Dick, because you said last year uh, were very public about the inflation uh, trends you saw, uh, double digits you were anticipating, 1970s style inflation. Do you still hold to that? The answer is yes. But the bottom line is, um, you you know, we talked about at that time, the uh, method of calculating the consumer price index, right? And I indicated to you that there were a number of irregularities in the in, in the printing of that number. And my understanding is that they're starting to correct those irregularities. And one of the ways it's going to do so is uh, with used cars. All right. So it wouldn't be shocking if we got a double digit number in the next couple of months. All right. But uh, yeah, no, I I. I don't. Uh, I don't retract what I said. You know, when we talked a year ago about this subject. You're listening to the Odeon Capital Conversations. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I'm with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Where do you both see the economy headed in the next 12 months? There's so much volatility in the market. There's so much nervousness. Investors are spooked. I hear it in the grocery stores over the weekend. What's going on? Some are blaming Joe Biden, Ukraine, supply shortages. They're looking to the pros for answers on this. I guess part of the explanation is we we won't have any clarity until these interest rates are factored in. But is it as simple as that? Do you see a period of volatility ahead, both of you? I think asset prices are clearly at their extremes. You know, the stock market, just on a broad basis, is trading way ahead of its traditional levels of price earnings. Um, Relative to bonds, it's trading on its extremes. But I don't necessarily think that that means that it's solved with a, a hard landing or a Fed-induced recession. I, th- I think a recession might come more from the government policies of continuing the idea of lockdowns, school shortages, school closures lead to parents staying home, lead to employers don't have um, workers, it leads to people not being out consuming. And I think a lot of this is still government-driven and the Fed is just reacting to the government. I, I think. Um, I think it's entirely possible if Omicron is the last bite of the COVID, you know, into the recession or into the into the economy, that we could come to the spring and have a huge resurgence of economic activity that surprises everybody. Um, and I think if I'm right, that inflation is almost entirely supply chain related, and you have an emerging 
re reopening of the economy that we could actually find ourselves in a stronger position and these stock prices are actually realistic if you can get stronger earnings off the back now i, I see the bear case and i listen to dick and i'm nodding my head at everything he says because i don't think he says anything wrong but it takes two perspectives to make a market a buyer and a seller and i just have a more of an optimistic view that i think that a lot of this is is pandemic related the supply chains pandemic related the earnings are going to be pandemic related and economic activity is pandemic related and that it'll give the fed the opportunity to slowly raise interest rates once or twice maybe three times while while omicron recedes and and things get back to normal um i think the risk to my call or my my assumption is that that the economic activity doesn't come back and that the supply chain shortages stay where they are. I agree, though, when you say Bank of America is paying everyone $22 an hour to start, they can't lower those prices, they fire people. Sure, I, I don't have any dispute with any of that, but I think the reason they're paying $22 is because while the federal government hasn't raised the minimum wage, the natural rate of the market has raised the minimum wage. That's the price to get an entry-level employee these days. That's just what it is. And mm -hmm. it comes out of profits, They've and it comes out of, of banks' earnings, and, and just like everyone else, they're going to have to rationalize their their infrastructure and rationalize their workforce if they want to grow prof profits. But I don't think that rising wages on the, on the, you know, let's be clear where the raise, where the wages are rising the most is on the lower end of the market, which is the smallest percentage of where the, the wall is spent on labor in the country. So I think you can have almost even a doubling of minimum wage and it wouldn't really have much impact on inflation in my opinion, because the, the percentage of people working at that level is such a small part of the economy and it's such a small part of the economy to raise their wages while it's significant to the average worker that's getting that raise, it's insignificant to the overall economy. But what, you know, obviously I, I'm tunnel visioned. I, uh, I always take a look at money and where money is going. And uh, what I see is, uh, you know, a contraction in uh, the, the rate of growth in the money supply, which is fairly significant. And therefore, I see a shifting of where money will come from in, in the economy. In other words, uh, I no longer believe that the capital markets will provide the, 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 the wealth uh, or the, the wealth of funds that, that have been created in the last couple of years. And I don't think that you're going to get it from the non-bank financial companies. What I do think is that you've got unbelievable amounts of money sitting in the American banking system. In other words, you know, Bank of America, you know, since I mentioned them before, they're sitting on $985 billion in securities, most of which are backed by the government. Uh, you know, JP Morgan Chase, I believe, has $600 billion in cash, most of which is on deposit at the Federal Reserve. And what I think is going to happen is that we're going to tap that source of money to keep the economy rolling all through 2022. And I think that inflation is going to create bigger profits uh, for the companies that, you know, create and sell goods. So I don't, I don't see any real crisis developing in 2022. What I do believe is that ultimately, uh, in, you know, the interest rates will go higher. The source of funds will ultimately be utilized that the banking system is providing as opposed to the Fed providing it. Uh, and that, you know, the economy will then, you know, have real problems in 2023. And, and, and therefore, I think that uh, we won't be worrying about inflation. We'll be worrying about recession.
Well, we're going to keep watching the markets very closely, Dick and uh, Matt. And it's been a great uh, pleasure, really interesting having this conversation, Odeon Capital Conversations. Do you both want to share with us some of your thoughts about what you want to achieve with uh, with this, this show and the kind of format? We're going to be talking the big pictures, the macro ideas. We'll take deep, deep dives into the research and papers done by Dick. That's part of what we're trying to get out of all of this. Yeah, I think what we're trying to achieve as a company is to bring our conversations that we're having on our trading desk and in, in our research offices um, out and open to available to our customers to be able to listen to and to, to broaden our perspective and to flesh out ideas so that people can listen to what we have to say and hear how we're getting to our conclusions Rather than just reading, you know, one of Dick's reports and and not seeing the step, the process of how he got there, but having a conversation that fleshes it out, and then you know, challenge each other's opinions and having these debates on on in in an open forum, so that hopefully we can learn together and hopefully educate um, our customers and and broaden our knowledge base. Yeah, I mean, basically, what what I hope to achieve is. Um, you know, an explanation of the thought process, of the theories, of the concepts, which lead to the stock recommendations. In other words, in the last couple of years, I was all, all hot on buying capital goods companies because I believe that, uh, you know, the, the money flows were going in that direction. Now I'm, I'm looking in a different direction. And, and uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's important, I think, to, to investigate how these broader forces in the world, whether what we mentioned about what's China, what China is doing or what Japan is doing or what, you know, what's happening at the Federal Reserve, what what's happened, which we didn't get into, what what is really money? You know, we, we didn't discuss that whole thing that, you know, what what is money, you know? Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that in the next uh, series of discussions that we can get, you know, to, you know, in depth on, on a whole bunch more issues than uh, just the couple that we we discussed at this point. I kind of like to mention also, you know, that uh, Matt is the only guy I know that uh, two years before the pandemic said that we were going to have a pandemic. Uh, so mm. <laughs> I think you know, I think there are ideas that uh, can be generated in the in these conversations, which may be a little bit further out, but uh, you know, hopefully we'll come up with a few that people can uh, sink their teeth into. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I wrote a story just before the shutdowns. I spoke to somebody at a big uh, research group, and he says millions of people are going to be working from home. I just thought it was far-fetched, but it was a great story, and it was a great headline. As it turns out, he was was right. Yeah, and hopefully some of the ideas that we express here will prove to be correct also. We'll have another conversation next week, uh, Dick and Matt. Thank you. It was great meeting you. And uh, we'll watch the markets and we'll have more to say next week. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. You were just listening to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. Your host was John Aiden Byrne. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.